beginnings are always difficult. Yes, Baron. If Casanova suddenly turned out to be Romeo, having supper with Juliet, who might become Cleopatra, how would you start? I would start to be cocktails. Mm-hmm. This is How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch one film at a time, or at least starting in our next episode. For our series premiere, I've convinced someone far more qualified than myself to discuss modern German history so we might contextualize Lubitsch's early career. Our conversation starts with Napoleon, encompasses the whole of the 19th century, the Great War, through to the Weimar era, and beyond. I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find these highly obscure movies we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Welcome. We are here with Lauren Faulkner Rossi, an assistant professor in the Department of History at Simon Fraser University. Can you let us know a little bit about yourself and what you specialize in? Sure. Uh, At SFU, I teach courses on the two world wars, on comparative genocide, and on Holocaust studies. But my research interests are primarily in modern Germany, so 1871 to the present, and primarily cultural and social history. So politics and and the wars and military stuff is great, but my research interests are true. Actually, my first book was about the role of religion and faith and the justifications that priests came up with for having to serve in the military during World War II. Well, thank you so much for making the time to be here with us. On yeah, our, thanks for having me. Yeah, on our extremely niche film podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so uh, we are not going to talk about Ernst Lubitsch much, if at all, today. Um, what I would like to do is to give me and you, the listener, hello, waving to you, a, a little bit of a grounding in the place and time that Ernst Lubitsch grew his roots as an artist. Um, of course, he was born in 1892 and uh, joined Max Reinhardt's uh, theater company in his 20s, uh, which would have been the early 1910s. And he started his directing career in 1915-16 um, before eventually leaving Germany for uh, reasons of Hollywood came calling, as David Collat would say. So we want to rewind a little bit beyond that 1892 date. And to start, I'd like to uh, quote uh, Richard Evans with the question that opens his uh, book, The Coming of the Third Reich, which is, is it okay to start with Bismarck? Uh, so my answer to that is I've never started with Bismarck. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I teach German history, I think uh, even if you're just teaching modern German history, which tends to be defined as as beginning with the inception of the nation state, the the unification of Germany, which is Bismarck in 1871, you can't understand how that happened if you don't go back to what was there before. And maybe that's a problem that plagues all historians. How do you decide where to start? Because there's always something that came before. But I think for me, um, I would actually quote a different German historian, Thomas Nipperdai, who famously began his history with, in the beginning of Germany, was Napoleon. <laughs> so I would go all the way back to Napoleon because it was really 
the arrival of Napoleon's armies in Central Europe before there was a Germany, so German-speaking lands, but but um, dozens of of independent kingdoms and duchies and and principalities. It was the arrival of the French armies that really instigated a sense of German nationalism that spread throughout this this area, and then it took another several decades, seven decades for. Uh, the right circumstances to come about to allow Germany to unify as, as what we know today as Germany. And it was Bismarck who oversaw that through force of personality or, or happy circumstance for him. Uh, but it, it took seven decades about. So, so when I say to my students, Germany started in 1871, but really it sort of cooked for several decades before that. And it had a lot to do with um, non-German actors that, that came in and sort of lit fires underneath them, so to speak. And uh, how did the failed uh, revolution of 1848 play into that? Um, it's often yeah. called, I, I've, I've seen this reference in numerous places, the idea in air quotes, listeners, uh, Germany reached its turning point and quote unquote failed to turn. Failed to turn. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That always makes me laugh. And it's as a graduate student, that's what I was taught. And then I was sort of taught that such a, such a, categorization is rooted in an, a sort of implicit understanding that the British and French models were the quote unquote right models that Germany failed to emulate. Um, so, so the failure refers to German liberalism. And 1848 meant that the, the revolutionaries really who were liberal politically and nationalists dedicated to to the realization of an independent united germany they failed to somehow garner broad enough support for the evolution of of a nation state along liberal lines and that they somehow doomed german liberalism because what eventually happened with bismarck who was not at all a liberal he was he was quite fiercely um locked into different kinds of confrontation with him for most of his political career uh, he is the one who oversaw the unification of Germany, and therefore it was not along liberal lines. So, so that quotation refers to um, a certain understanding of of the evolution of the German nation state, which failed to become liberal along the, the French or British examples. So, what did 1848 have to do with unification? Well, it had a great deal to do with it because it meant the liberals were not really uh, in charge of it or were not overseeing it. It meant that liberals uh, who didn't abandon their ideals um, had to work with other interests and other groups who weren't necessarily interested in realizing a Germany that would look and act the same way. Uh, and it meant that conservative forces spearheaded by Bismarck, but also by different leaders in different areas of the German-speaking lands of Central Europe, also had a great deal of political power, particularly the Prussian king, who ends up becoming German emperor with Bismarck as chancellor. And who is that? I have to think about this. William I. <laughs> um, the Hohenzollern dynasty, which was the leading house of the kingdom of Prussia, mm. named, had three names that they recycled, Frederick, William, and Frederick William. <laughs> and so um, William I, king of Prussia, then became William I, emperor of Germany in mm -hmm. 1871. And it was as a result of the Kingdom of Prussia uh, winning a series of wars with neighboring countries. And this is where um, the sort of the might and honor and prestige of the Prussian army 
becomes the backbone of, of a German military that is also widely respected and honored outside of Germany because of these military victories. Mm-hmm. It also means that the German nation state that was realized in 1871 was born of, of war and violence. And Bismarck was sort of essential, essential in this. He was, an, he was a conservative East Prussian aristocrat who insisted in 1871 after the Third War with France, Germany's age-old enemy. This was the, the reversal of Napoleon's victories seven decades earlier, right? Insisted that he wasn't interested in war anymore, that he was satisfied, and that the German Empire as it then was formed was complete. He wouldn't keep gobbling up neighboring countries. Um, he did take chunks of France, Alsace and Lorraine. He did ch- take a chunk of Denmark um, after that first war with Denmark. And he um, sidelined Austria completely. This, this, the middle war was with Austria. And it was the defeat actually of Austria that maybe didn't precipitate, but it continued the downward spiral of the Austrian Empire, which in 1815 had been the authority on the continent. And it solidified Prussia's place as, as um, the dominant power in Central Europe and, and therefore the dominant power in a united Germany. To kind of uh, look forward to what was to come in the 20th century, there's often this common, I'd say, belief mm-hmm. that Germany was uniquely situated to fall into this kind of abyss of violence that uh, happened, uh, you know, that occurred with the, um, you know, in 1933 and this almost um, uh, fatalistic attitude towards that, right? That somehow Germany of all countries uh, had a unique um, set of uh, ingredients. Um, I, I warn my students against that um, because as a historian, I have to say there's nothing inevitable at any point in history. And uh, second, that such an understanding of the evolution of German history is, is predicated on reading it backwards, really. You're starting in 33, or, or really you're starting in like 41 or 42, and you're looking backwards to find this pattern that if you, if you start from the other end, so to speak, 1871 or earlier, 1892, whatever, and go forwards, there's actually nothing inevitable about, about 1933. And there were so many other points at which something else might have come about quite easily. Um, and you could, you could do the same with the, with the histories of other nation states. It's just that Germany has such, such powerful and dark history. I think that they're the favorite to, to sort of play with history in this way. Nazism, fascism, Hitler, there's no glimmer at all of him at the end of the the 19th turn of the 20th century in Germany. While we might focus on the authoritarian political structure, the dominance of Prussia, the, the glory of the military and militarism, it had a constitution. It had a parliament that, while its powers were quite limited, it, it did have control over the budget. The emperor was not all-powerful certainly depended on the chancellor. Bismarck was not all-powerful. He owed his position to the emperor. And while he got along very well with and was supported by the first emperor that he served, the, the first emperor of Germany, his successor, William II, couldn't stand him. And Bismarck didn't last very long. He was dismissed quite abruptly in 1890, right? Um, so, there are, so there are all these sort of, I wouldn't call them checks and balances because that brings to mind the American system. And really, there's not a lot of comparison there. Um, but there are, there are, you call them ingredients. Um, there, there are elements to the German situation that I think are worth bearing in mind when we're tempted to 
sort of fast forward and see this as simply a, a, a staging ground for what comes later. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost reduces, I think, to me, the, the, uh, the, uh, the situation and achievements of, especially, I think, Weimar Germany as almost a prelude to absolutely you know, what people think is the main event in giant air quotes listeners. <laughs> yeah. It, historians have also tended to treat Weimar as, as a situation that was inevitably going to fail. And it had all sorts of problems that weren't really present um, prior to World War I. But, but again, it was a very different political structure, I would argue, that, that came about in 1919. Leading us to the kind of uh, direct pre-war era, i say the turn of the century, um, what sort of forces were, were at work in Germany and Germans' attitudes leading up to that war? What expectations did Germans have there? But I also want to touch upon the sort of nature of the constitutional monarchy there. Uh, how that played into it and the tensions there between the conservatives who, uh, to my understanding, kind of held um, civil liberties in the social Democrat sense in contempt. Indeed. Um, So how all that played into what occurred during the war and the myths that came out of that. So there's a couple of different arenas that we have to sort of look at here. One is, of course, the relationship between Germany and its neighbors and the evolution of that relationship between say the early 1870s and the first decade and a half of the 20th century. And the other is the um, domestic, the sort of internal political system within Germany. And they're, they're connected obviously in, in lots of important and complicated ways. Um, as I mentioned, Bismarck once he had a unified German nation state with, with Prussia firmly in control of that nation state, tried to pacify worried neighbors and, and calm down this sort of European situation by insisting that he wasn't interested in expanding on European territory anymore. And instead, um, went about using diplomacy to safeguard um, Germany's position on the continent or to try and grow German influence in more subtle ways, not through conquest or, or war. And, and he called this um, realpolitik, right? This emphasis on, on diplomacy. Uh, William II, who, who succeeded William I as emperor, had a very different approach to international politics. Um, this was Weltpolitik. And he much more brazenly wanted to make Germany a dominant world power, not just a dominant European power. And this meant competing directly with what the world power was at that time, which was Britain and the British Empire. And, and so he was, less, uh, he was less patient with um, the sort of diplomatic approaches that Bismarck had favored. And he did his best, for example, to acquire overseas colonies in ways that Bismarck had not really been as interested in. Uh, he was less interested in maintaining some of the alliances that Bismarck had signed with, with former enemies, former um, opponents on the battlefield. Austria and Germany remained aligned. They shared a culture, they shared a language. Less interested in playing nice with France, which became a problem, less interested in playing nice with Russia, which also eventually became a problem because once Germany stepped back from relations with those two powers, it left them free to look elsewhere for reassurance, especially military reassurance, and they looked to Britain. And so there's all these sort of game playing and shifting of alliances that happens really after 1890 that ultimately sort of ratcheted up the tension in Europe. And this is also a debate that historians have to what extent is Germany primarily responsible for causing World War I, right? And depending on who you ask, you'll get a very different answer. Uh, Germany's insistence that, that it deserved to be a world power right next to Britain 
caused all sorts of problems because that upset a sort of very delicate balance of power and because Britain really wasn't interested in making room for another power, right? So that's sort of outside of Germany's borders. Within German borders, the conservatives remain fairly entrenched. It's the system was set up to really benefit them. The liberals are still smarting, really, from 1848. They're, they're trying to figure out sort of who they are and what they stand for. They splinter, actually, a bunch of times, uh, which is also problematic uh, if you're trying to accrue any kind of um, foothold in the, in the political system and become strong enough to take on the conservatives. And then you have the socialists. And, and I love the German socialists because by the eve of World War I, they're the biggest socialist movement on the continent, easily. Uh, and they're often close to or the largest political party in the German parliament. But again, because of the way the system was constructed, they're unable to actually do anything with that clout. And so, um, so you have this, this movement that represents an increasingly broad swath of the German population that can't really do anything for them. And there's a curious tension in their identity between their socialist instincts and their German national identity that really comes out in 1914 when the war starts and they're expected to sort of get in line with everybody else and support the war effort. Um, German socialists were very, uh, I wouldn't say they were they're pacifists, but they were very anti-war and very anti-imperialism, both uh, being blamed for like the evils of capitalism, right? But in 1914, they capitulate and they, they do get in line and they do support the war effort for at least the first half of the war to the detriment of that movement itself, because then it splinters too, just like the liberals. Mm -hmm. So you, you see within Germany, there's, there's all these tensions that sort of mirror the external tensions. Um, it, and it weakens those who might be interested in reforming the system, which clearly is not there to represent the rights of the average German. That's not what that constitution was. I, I like making my students read that constitution. They hate it. <laughs> Nobody likes reading constitutions. They're really boring. The point of the exercise is to understand that not all cons constitutions were written with an eye to protecting the rights of citizens. This one, the 1871 constitution, was very much about determining where power lay and, and the obligations that German citizens had towards the state. And then it did various other things, like it, it preserves uh, autonomy for some of the, the more powerful smaller kingdoms. Bavaria and Baden, for instance, got to retain their own army. They got to retain control over their rail system. They got to have their own postal service, like sort of really odd bits that, that we think, wow, that's a strange thing to sort of insert into a constitution. But that's actually how unification was achieved. That's how some mm. of these not quite as powerful as Prussia kingdoms and and duchies were persuaded to fall in line behind the Prussian king. It in turn suggests that, that German national identity might not be as deep or as securely anchored as we might think heading into World War I because of all these regional loyalties that, that persist that you can actually see in the constitution itself. It's interesting to me how that contrasts with the popular conception of German nationalism leading up to there, where it's as if, I mean, if we're going by today's dates, um, you know, on the eve of World War I, Germany had only what was the year when we can say Germany kind of constituted itself as a nation state? 1871. So thinking of a nation being fervently nationalist when it's 43 years old is um, quite something. For sure. For yeah. sure. As I said, Napoleon really got 
um, Germans thinking about what it was to be German because suddenly there there was there there were French occupation soldiers everywhere. So I'm not I'm not arguing there is no such thing as German national mm. identity in by 1914. There was a sense of German national identity. I'm simply challenging the idea that all Germans everywhere in Germany knew what that identity was and and or could agree on what that identity was. Um, even if we look just at language, right? We t we tend to refer to Central Europe pre 1871 as German speaking lands, right? And they did all speak German. But they all spoke different dialects of German, and somebody speaking the Plattdeutsch of Hamburg would have had a really hard time understanding somebody perhaps speaking some rural dialect of Bavarian German. And if you've ever been to Germany, I can tell you, you can hear the difference even if you don't understand the German. These are people that, are, that sound like they're not quite speaking the same language, even though they are. So those differences persist into 1914, and, and there were much stronger regional identifications in some ways than, you know, the sort of state imposed national holidays, for example. What did Sedan Day mean? Was it the same meaning in the Rhineland as it was in East Prussia? German nationalism, I think, was really something that took an external presence to fire up. And without that external presence, it, I would argue people sort of back away from, Germans sort of back away from it and fall into a more regional identity in ways that it maybe it's hard for us as, as Canadians in 2022 to conceptualize. Leading into World War One, and did the average German citizen or even member of the political class, did they expect to win? Oh, absolutely. They expected to win. They had won three wars previously, right? Um, against Austria, uh, Denmark, and France. And they'd been underdogs each time. Mm -hmm. The Russian army, as far as anyone knew, was in shambles. They, they couldn't beat Japan, which, oh my God, that, like, that was a crisis. Um, the Japanese came out of nowhere, really, to, to win that war in the early 20th century. And that precipitated a huge crisis in Russia. And it, everyone, not just the Germans, everyone, but the Germans were all told they'd be home by Christmas. It would be, this would be an easy war. Uh, with with Austria on the same side, also fighting, um, and, and no one really had a good idea of just how brutally the Austrian the Austrian military would perform. But there was this firm idea that this was going to be a short war, just like the last three wars, and and that Germany would win handily. For the the German population and the political and military classes, what happens to surprise them or undercut their expectations? So so what happens really is on the Western Front. And there's no, there's no quick victory. All of a sudden, it's Christmas 1914, and there's no sign of a breakthrough um, for either side, you, the British and the French on the, on the one side and, and the Germans on the other. Then you get into 1915, and there's still no breakthrough. And then it's 1916, and there's still no breakthrough. And it's, it's just this, it's almost a, a slow realization that this is going to be a slog and that there's no understanding of, of how to get out of this. Diplomacy is unthinkable. We came here to win. We're, we're not here to, to, to sit down at a table and talk about this. We're, we're just going to see this through. And it takes four and a half years to see it through. Uh, the experience on the Eastern Front for the Germans is very different. There's a clear victory by the end of 1914. And, and, and even if, if we're going to be really picky as military historians, by spring 1915, Germans are occupying large sections of sort of Western Russia. And there's not much fighting, although, although there's no real, there's no treaty until uh, early 1918. 
The second surprise, which is which is in many ways worse, is the nature of the war. What so many did not account for was the advances in technology between the 1870s and 1914 and their devastation, like their their sort of real impact on on bodies, like physically um, when they're unleashed in a in a war environment. So the nature of the fighting, the sort of psychological trauma of that fighting for those who suffered it and, and for those who have to take care of the soldiers who survive, who go home sometimes in pieces, uh, sometimes physically, sometimes mentally. So the, the legacy of this war, it's brutality. The idea that you could kill easily from a distance, that you could kill tens of thousands in a matter of days, this is a new kind of warfare that, that very, very few were prepared for, that most found because there was no choice, they had to in some way adapt to it. And, and there appeared to be no end year after year. Um, battles like uh, the, the Somme, for instance, the, the, the significant battle of 1916, it was a 10-month battle over something like five miles of territory. Um, it was a front that stretched from the Channel to Switzerland that featured very little movement and no definitive victory between the end of 1914 and the middle of 1918. And it's so hard to convey to people now in 2022 what, what that meant for soldiers, but also for the countries involved. Like, how do you make sense of this? How do you sell this war to your young men who are still getting called up because each year means you need fresh bodies? So what is the impact on, on Germans? It's horrific. It, it was bad for everybody for who was part of this, the Austrians, the, the Turks, the French, the British. Germans were fighting on German and French soil, mostly French for most of the war. So the, so the impact on combatants was, was one thing. If they survived, they, they, they often survived with serious wounds. And, and I'm not talking just about physically, I'm talking about mentally, it was called shell shock, but it was an era in which um, PTSD was unknown and weakness among men was perceived to be due to the character of the man and mm. not to the nature of the trauma. And so they were frequently treated as, you just have to shrug it off and get back out there. Can you imagine telling that to somebody today who has PTSD? But that was sort of standard treatment. Um, the medical professions f sort of figured this out on the fly. And really, they didn't figure it out until after World War II. For civilians left back at home, the war was, was brutal in different ways, um, and especially in urban centers. So Germany really wasn't prepared in any way to fight a long war. Remember I said that everyone was told it'd be done by Christmas? So there was no long-term planning in, in terms of sort of the industrial input into the, into the war, in terms of food planning. And so for German civilians, particularly in urban areas, the overarching, the, the, the largest memory of the experience of the war outside of having to deal with family members who were killed or missing or wounded was a lack of food. Um, by 1915, there were food shortages, significant food shortages in different parts of Germany. There was a ration system that was introduced fairly quickly. Uh, the winter of 1916 was called the turnip winter because that was essentially the only crop that could be found in German markets. And so Germans ate turnips for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, for weeks. And I, I, I can't fathom that. So if you were in a rural area, you were a little bit better off because you had access to 
whatever you could find in the fields or in the forest, whatever you could sort of catch or hunt or dig up uh, on your own in a city, you don't have that option, right? So, so some had the foresight to try and grow vegetables in courtyards or in small gardens next to their homes. Um, some had the foresight to, to acquire rabbits and chickens and keep those as food sources, but you can only make those last for so long, right? One of the other catastrophes that visited Germany was an, was sort of ac- an, av- an avoidable accident. And it was the idea put forward in early 1915 by, by German war planners that pigs were rivals to, for humans in terms of having to be fed. And if we, if we got rid of our pigs, then we'd have all this meat. And so there, there was a great pig massacre in 1915 in which most of Germany's pigs were killed. Um, and, so there, and then there was a sudden glut of, of sort of pork on the market. But I shouldn't laugh. That's horrible. But it well. Is, well, it is horrible. <laughs> whether, you're, whether you're vegetarian or vegan or not, like, like that was, a, that was that, my goodness, can you imagine? Um, but the real lack of foresight was not, ju- it was not just that pigs maybe were competing with humans, were they really? Or that we needed the meat. What else do pigs provide that was pretty essential? If you are in agriculture, they're, they're the basis of fertilizer. So killing all of the pigs means you're going to inevitably run into a shortage of fertilizer because, of course, the other thing that's happened as a result of the war, um, German imports are non-existent. This was, this was actually how Britain planned to get Germany to surrender, right? Um, they recognized that Germany was heavily dependent on imports, especially of food and foodstuffs, and they set up a blockade. And that blockade, the Germans didn't pierce it all war. Um, it was a very effective naval blockade. Um, and so by 1918, especially in major urban centers and, and especially in the capital, we could look at Berlin as the example, um, the food shortages are so severe and have been so systemic, so long-term that Berlin is more or less on the verge of civil war. It's crippled by strikes and demonstrations. Most of the civilians uh, spend their time standing in in lines for food. Um, There's widespread discontent. The socialists are no longer entirely on board with the war effort, partly for this reason. There's actually a split in the ranks of the socialists um, in 1917. And we have the, the, the core of the later communist party starts to emerge. And there's whispers of revolution and unrest. And after February 1917, with the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, those fears start to really ramp up in Germany that that the socialist movement in Germany, which by the way, was the largest socialist movement on the continent in 1914, uh, that that could uh, lead to something similar happening on German soil that could really undermine, if not destroy, the war effort itself. So if, if, you're, if you're the military planners of Germany in 1917, you're really starting to worry about um, how this war is going to end for your country. And then you have the actual, uh, the, the revolution that did happen from 1918 to 1919. In many ways, predictable. The, the German military planners, uh, who by this point were essentially dictators, um, Martin Kitchen has called them the silent dictatorship. Uh, Hindenburg, uh, who was the, the, the formal head of the, the military and his quartermaster, General uh, Erich Ludendorff, who is probably really the brains of the two, they're running Germany. The emperor is still there, but he's essentially given, they've essentially accrued power. They're, they're determining who's chancellor and what decisions the chancellor is going to make. 
And they've decided in 1918 to put everything into one last offensive on the Western Front to try and break the stalemate. And the, the first part, I guess you could call it, there are sort of four waves. The first one goes relatively well, but they spend all of their, all of their um, energy. And the other thing that happens is that the Americans arrive. The Americans don't get involved in the war until uh, 1917, formally. Informally, they were uh, helping out Britain. But American troops start to arrive on European soil in 1918, and Germany cannot hope to keep up with, with the arrival of, of men as fresh as the Americans. So really, the writing's on the wall by the summer of 1918. And German civilians who, who have half a brain can see it too. So the, the end is not far off in coming. And nonetheless, it, it, it seems shocking when it does come. I think most Germans were expecting an armistice, um, a truce of some kind, sort of like what happens in the East with, with, with the Russians who, who finally formally pull out of the war once the revolution's broken out. In fact, the revolution was caused by the war and signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Germans, which was hugely punitive and greatly benefited the Germans. So I think that they were expecting on the Western Front something similar, and that's not what happens. What did happen? The military leaders indicate to the political leadership that they've been running, that it's time to sue for peace. And then they sort of conveniently exit stage left. And so the signing of the peace is left to the political leadership, who then bear the brunt of essentially what's a lost war. The, the British and French and Americans were, were going to win. If the war had continued, they were essentially just across German borders and would have invaded. So the armistice meant that there was no formal invasion, but it was very clear to the military that the Germans had lost. About the same time, there are two revolutions proclaimed in Berlin on the 9th of November, which, which the Germans refer to as Schicksalstag, the day of German destiny, because an awful lot of really important things happened on November 9th. The two revolutions proclaimed different republics. This is before, by the way, November 11th, which is the, the end of the war. So Berlin is in complete chaos. The, the republic that ultimately wins out is the one that's sort of given the blessing of, of who's, who's left to deal with military affairs and who's coordinating um, the parliament. The, the rival republic was the socialist republic that, that was set up by the more radical socialists who then go on to become communists. And Berlin essentially is a simmering civil war uh, for the next several months, up to a year and a half, until the, the leaders of that, that sort of incipient communist party are actually killed in police custody. And was that the 1919 kind of failed revolution attempt? Yeah. And that was kind of the start of the, of the schism between the social democrats and the communists? Yes, absolutely. There was no sort of going back to, to being friendly with each other after that. Um, it, it got so bad that the politicians charged with writing the constitution for the new republic because the, the emperor had to abdicate. This was part of the republic being proclaimed and, and the armistice being, uh, being figured out. The, the politicians charged with writing a new constitution for this new republic had to leave Berlin because the fighting was so bad they feared for their lives. Where did they retreat to to write the constitution? To the city of Weimar, which has a, an illustrious history in terms of culture and in terms of figures like Goethe. Uh, so there was real symbolism in choosing Weimar as, as the city to write this new constitution. And, and that's where the, the era that follows gets its name and, and where the constitution gets its name. It's sometimes just called the 19, 
1919 constitution, but most historians will refer to it as the Weimar constitution because it was written in Weimar. And that brings us to, I guess, the Weimar years. Yes, <laughs> finally. So uh, interwar Germany is, I think, of, of fascination to, to many um, because I think it's this interesting best of times, worst of times dichotomy within the era. You know, it's both a cautionary tale of what happens when, you know, the word we might use now is polarization hits an extreme where society has no, I think just to paraphrase um, Weitz, it's uh, a society that is seen as lacking a consensus for how to move forward. Yes. Um, well, simultaneously, it's seen as this almost golden era full of cultural accomplishments and achievements. And, you know, the almost um, it's often seen as the birth for, for example, uh, modern ideas of LGBT identity and and uh, and trans rights. Yeah, that's what it's seen as. How do we reconcile those two things? Sure. If we even, do we even want to? <laughs> I mean, they they exist in tandem and in tension with each other. It's because of that lack of consensus politically, I think, that you get such startling um, developments in the in the arts and and um, in society. You you've, you have such broad capacity to experiment in so many ways because there's no consensus on what the rules are. Um, so I don't think you, I think that's the, res, I think that's the resolution actually, mm. um, that they belong next to each other, that, that they can't exist one without the other. Let's quickly touch upon the circumstances that led to the situation, right? Cause it's, it, we're finally in the area of a Republic, right? There is, there's no monarch <laughs> technically. I know. Well, he's around. He's just, I think he's in the Netherlands. If I yeah. recall. In exile? In exile. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you, so you have the power vacuum, really, that's created by the absence of traditional leadership, as Germans knew it. Mm -hmm. in, in its place, you have a, a republic uh, and parliamentary democracy, not a constitutional monarchy. And so it's not, this is not to say that Germans had no experience with democracy. They, they certainly did. Um, we call it a constitutional monarchy before 1918, but there were still elections. There's still political parties. Technically so is Canada. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So when you, that's a, that's a really good analogy to draw. And so it's tempting to think of Germans as inexperienced with, with the practice of democracy in the Weimar era. And that, that somehow explains what eventually happens. But I don't think it explains anything. I, I think actually they knew how to vote. They knew what um, engaged politics was. They, by all accounts, um, Margaret Anderson has done a lot of research into this. Uh, they voted enthusiastically. They participated in democracy. And so in, what's changed instead is, is the nature of the political structure. The idea that political parties and politicians now were in charge and there was no single figure who was going to be making all of the important decisions. Uh, so a move away from authoritarianism, if you will. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it was this that Germans were, had less experience with. Uh, and certainly German politicians had trouble finding consensus. There's that word again mm -hmm. about how to fill that power vacuum. And so the new structure had still had a chancellor and had a president in place of a monarch. Um, and the president was elected, but, not, but on sort of an off cycle. And so there, were, there was a different system of checks and balances. Th there was a, an article written into the new constitution 
that was meant to, you know, that was very much a product of that chaos at the end of the war that we discussed, where it was felt that if civil war threatens, if revolution threatens to sort of undermine everything, there has to be a way for us to make decisions quickly without sort of committee, right? Without Mm -hmm. sort of sitting around a table to discuss it. And so that was written into Article 48 of the Constitution, which in a crisis situation gave the president the power to sort of get around a a lot of the checks and balances that the Constitution otherwise had and make very quick decisions about how to deal with with an emergency. So I'm I'm bringing this up for important reasons later on. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the parliament, uh, the Reichstag, which is both the physical building where the parliament met, as well as the name that the parliament, the, the, the group of politicians had, uh, the Reichstag during the Weimar Republic, the era of the Weimar Republic, was largely an exercise in how to figure out or how to sort out political power sharing for the first time. Because while it had existed prior to 1914, it, its power was largely over the budget, and that was it. And all of a sudden, there are decisions to be made about um, implementing the Constitution, uh, what to do with the Treaty of Versailles, which we haven't even discussed yet, um, what to do with um, federal versus state level legislation and power sharing, uh, and so on and so forth. And the the Treaty of Versailles comes really quickly after the, the Weimar Constitution is, is written and accepted. And the Treaty of Versailles sort of casts a long shadow over the Weimar Republic. And I would argue that if, if anything made it more likely that this that this experiment that we call the Weimar Republic was going to fail. It was not so much the political structure that the Constitution helped put in place. It was the Treaty of Versailles. But was it the kind of punitive nature of it, maybe? or it, it was partly the punitive nature, although really the Germans should have expected this. And, and they could have looked at their own treatment of the Russians with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. If you put those two side by side that Brest-Litovsk is as harsh as, if not harsher than, the Treaty of Versailles. So there was, there was shock and dismay and consternation and, and real resentment over the Treaty of Versailles, o- over the terms that it had in it. It whittled down the army to 100,000 men. It completely abolished the, the Air Force. It stripped Germany of all of its overseas possessions, so no more overseas empire. And it carved huge chunks of German territory out of Germany proper. And it separated East Prussia, for, for instance, from the rest of Germany because of the um, construction of the, the so-called Polish corridor. By the way, Poland is reconstituted, right, mm. for the first time in, I think, 200, over 200 years, which meant that huge pieces of Prussia were taken away from Germany, which, you know, formerly belonged to an independent Poland. So all of that was bad enough. Perhaps not surprising, given the way that that treaties tended to be written by victorious European powers. What really sort of stung, what Germans had a hard time accepting, was Clause 231, the so-called war guilt clause. Mm -hmm. And I I tell my students that I blame the Allies as much as I blame the Germans for this part of, of, of history. What Article 231 did was it assigned responsibility for the war to Germany and its allies for causing the war. And it was meant to justify the reparations that were demanded. Um, so in a certain amount of money and a certain amount of goods that had to be paid, particularly to France, but to all of the allied countries who had suffered. The Germans really resented the idea that they, that they were primarily responsible for this war. 
But the, the translation of the clause was also problematic because Germans understood it to assign sole responsibility. Mm. And they really bridled at this. Like we, we were one of several people who made this war. It takes two, it takes two to sort of tangle, right? And the Allies were aware that this, there was this common sort of misconception of what that article was and didn't do anything to correct the misconception. Um, the Austrians had a similar clause in their treaty. Uh, I don't think the Hungarians did. They had a, they had a sort of separate setup. Um, but they were by no means the only central power, the only losing power that was, that was made to uh, accept responsibility for the war. So when you have the kind of deep resentment stirred up by this treaty that was forced upon the Germans in the aftermath of the war, a war that it wasn't clear to many Germans they'd actually lost because there'd been no invasion, a war that they're very quickly told by the end of 1918, even during the chaos that, that reigned over Berlin, I, th I think it's Hindenburg makes mention of this. They're, they're told that the carpet was pulled out from under them by the civilian leadership at home who had signed this armistice, even though, in fact, Hindenburg and Ludendorff had instructed them to. It's a recipe for disaster. Like there, It's this refusal, this obstinate refusal by a majority of the German population to accept this treaty is just going to fester long term. And the politicians that are in charge of the Weimar Republic are by and large not interested in trying to make them feel better about it because they hate it as much as the next German, right? So talk about an opportunity to, to really cultivate and, and enhance a sense of national identity, but it's grounded in this idea of, of victimhood, of misplaced blame. It's a very negative conception of identity, but it, but it really sort of resonates with a lot of Germans who had a horrible, miserable experiences of the war and now have horrible, miserable experiences of the post-war period. It isn't just the politics within Germany and some sort of part of the, you know, German national character. That's the, right. you know, in big air quotes again, uh, it's a certain set of geopolitical circumstances that uh, in many ways um, pressed down upon, you know, uh, the German population at that time. Right. And uh, as you, as you say, uh, it caused misplaced blame. We, we have those political forces and, you know, throughout the Weimar era, you have no shortage of political violence. Kind of uh, taking a little detour into the, say, um, experience of someone, you say, a particularly cosmopolitan person in Berlin yeah. <laughs> uh, during this era. Um, what would they, uh, especially someone in the arts, you know, sure. might may or may not be related to the subject of this podcast. Uh, what would that experience have been like? So, so cosmopolitan Germany, really what you're talking about is Berlin. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no city like Berlin. It cast itself as and tried to be and was understood to be a world city on the same level as Paris or London, even before World War I, in terms of its cosmopolitanness and its, uh, its dedication to the arts and its, its fervor in trying to attract tourists, um, both from around Germany, but also from around the world. So what happens under Weimar? The experience of the war in Germany meant that, among other things, to support the war effort, everyone had to be pulled into line. Censorship was a very real thing. And it was very rigid and very top down. And it was particularly heavy felt in urban areas, obviously, and, and, and in the arts, um, where obviously freedom of expression was, was highly prized and, and much sought after. So with the institution of a fledgling republic, whose attention was often elsewhere, 
censorship was lifted completely. And there was this, this very real sense of sudden freedom, literally where you couldn't tell where the edges were. And so Berliners uh, took that and ran with it. It had always, as I said, because of its status as a world city pre-1914, it, it had always tended in this direction. And outside of Berlin, Germans sort of viewed their capital with, I think, you know, depending on their background, obviously, but some degree of skepticism. Like this is, this is, not, a, um, this is not a good example of a true, true upright German. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of suspicious sketchy things that happen in the capital city kind of thing. And um, to some extent, that attitude continues into the post-war, uh, post-1918 period. But if, if you're an artist that's from anywhere in Europe, Berlin is, is probably the most exciting place to be, precisely because of the absence of regulation. Um, so, for instance, the cabaret culture, which predates World War I, flourishes between 1918 and 1933. And by cabaret, I mean live music. I mean um, entertainment, live entertainment, uh, singing and dancing, audience interaction with the performers on the stage. Uh, you have a very vibrant gay subculture, a very open one that you couldn't necessarily live out elsewhere in, in Germany, including in other urban areas that, w- that would have been very sort of obviously problematic. But in Berlin, anything went. Uh, it wasn't policed at all, even if officially, homosexuality remained criminalized according to the Weimar Constitution, which carried over some of the 1871 Constitution. And so it had been a a criminal offense, particularly for men um, from 1871. Uh, From my understanding, that was uh, relatively unenforced after the Weimar Republic was uh, founded. You have uh, films like um, Richard Oswald's Different from the Others, uh, where you have a depiction of an actual homosexual relationship on screen. Yes. Yeah, shocking and and but exciting and and I I think those are two words that really go together with Berlin like the visi- the the visual culture that comes out of Berlin in this era shocking and exciting sort of go together a lot at this time it's sort of shock entertainment it it quickly became known uh, really globally that Berlin was a good place to go for illicit whatever your hedonistic tendencies ran to you could probably find it satisfied in Berlin between 1919 and 1933. Did this have something to do perhaps as a whole with um, the kind of popular, especially external attitude towards Weimar that persists to this day, that it was a uniquely decadent, you know, culture, especially Weimar Berlin. Um, Cause <laughs> yeah. that, that's something that, I mean, that was the first, you know, have you ever seen uh, the show Babylon Berlin? That show is basically about how decadent yes. that culture is. And yes. And uh, I found it interesting because it obviously explicitly departs from reality in lots yes. of ways. Yeah, it does. Um, it does absolutely. <laughs> Even though <laughs> amateur like me, I'm like, oh, this isn't quite right. <laughs> but um, it almost feeds into this, I think, I mean, uh, to, to my experience, to my understanding, um, something of a myth that it was this wildly decadent, you know, like unsustainable society in big air quotes. This is a post-war atmosphere. And so to some extent in urban centers across Western Europe, there is this giddy relief and celebration that the war is finally over. Uh, And so it's not just happening in in Berlin in that sense, that that atmosphere that sort of um, catapults some of this effervescence and, and cultural and artistic 
celebration and in, into the heights that it achieves. But Berlin is different from London and Paris in that, you know, it's, it's a city that's literally emerging from, from bloodshed in the streets and, and revolution and near civil war in some, in some areas, actual civil war. And, and so the idea that there's, there are no boundaries for the moment, maybe tomorrow there'll be boundaries, mm. but today there are no boundaries. That's really specific, I think, to Berlin. Like you don't even find it in Hamburg or Munich or, or Nuremberg, some of these other larger urban centers in, in Germany. Um, it's the capital. Like it's, it's also the seat of government. So there's a sense that things are really going on here. And mm-hmm. it's the, the head of the new German Republic. So, so really the focus, not just of, um, of Europe, but of our entire country. Uh, there's, there's a lot of sort of importance and self-importance. But so too, again, because they were the nerve center during the war years, and those pressures are now absent, that willingness to experiment and to see how far we can get before we find pushback it's not just happening, obviously, in the visual arts, although that's certainly the most exciting. You see um, women and, and like-minded reformers organizing around the issue of abortion, for example, um, which also was illegal, according to the new constitution, remains illegal until, until um, well, we get into post-45 period. Um, there was an amendment passed in 26 that allowed abortion in, in certain circumstances. Usually the life of the mother was gravely endangered, which was seen at that time as really progressive and cutting edge. Of course, we would see it as, as quite very, very small steps forward, right? Uh, and the reformers themselves were disappointed in 26 because it was so restrictive. But you also had um, the idea that the, you know, the reason that abortion was so important was because women were increasingly out in public, in the workforce, having independent lives in ways that hadn't existed before the war. And that was largely because of the war. In the absence of men, women, especially young women, had been required to take jobs. And they weren't necessarily willing to give up that, that freedom and that financial security when the men returned in 1918. Um, so there's a real earnest and fiery conversation happening basically throughout the Weimar Republic about gender roles. Um, not just with an eye to the gay subculture that I've mentioned and, and to trans rights and the ideas uh, around same-sex couples, but also towards like what should a woman be expected to do? What should a man's sphere be? You had mentioned, I think, before we got started, cross-dressing mm-hmm. um, sort of takes off maybe is the wrong way to put it because it implies it hadn't been around before and it, it had, it, it's got antecedents in the 19th century but it becomes much more widespread in urban areas, especially in Berlin, where you have women, you know, not necessarily dressing as and trying to pass as men, but just want the freedom to wear pants, to wear trousers, um, which horrified conservatives, right? Like, like th- these are women trying to be men and this is going to upset our, our traditional conception of balanced gender roles, separate, separate but equal spheres, right? Where women uh, should be concentrating on having children and building a family unit. And if they're out having uh, out in public, holding jobs, dressing like men, cutting their hair short, smoking, wearing lots of makeup, this is not what we want our women to be doing. And of course, uh, the other fear, the other concern that's really driving a lot of these anxieties, which is again, not specific to Germany, but Germany gets a lot of the attention, is a falling birth rate just happening, happening everywhere in the industrialized world has to do with, with education. 
has to do with access to um, not so much to contraception, but to increased knowledge about avoiding pregnancy as a woman. A falling birth rate means that the future of your people might be in jeopardy because you're not producing enough to really sustain it, right? And if we give our if we give our women the freedom to decide whether or not they want to start families or to question their gender, where are we going to end up in 20, 30, 40 years? We're certainly not going to correct the current problem of a falling, a declining birth rate. Or so the thinking goes if you're a conservative German who's really worried about the future of your people in the aftermath of this devastating war that seemingly killed off an entire generation of young men. And so you have this interesting uh, kind of uh, liberalization that is uh, instigating the coming backlash. Yes. There's that polarization, right? Exactly. The coming of the Republic, which is seen as this great political change that is surely going to affect um, power structures, not just politically, but also socially, actually doesn't change all that much. And those who suffered the most during the war will continue to suffer the most during the Weimar era, largely because they lack this, this deeper, more established cushion to fall back on. That, um, you know, the, the sort of industrialists, that class of people, or that the nobles with deep pockets might still have that, that they can sort of still play with and depend on. Uh, and you see this really starkly in 1923, which was the height of hyperinflation in, in Germany. And it ha- this has a lot to do with um, the currency that was introduced and the new economic um, situation that the, the end of the war ushered in. And the tensions between Germany and France that played out in, in the rural area of West Germany that led to a decision to embark on a general strike, which then exacerbated some, some really sort of horrific conditions already playing out, where German money is essentially became worthless. And by November 1923, you can, you can look this up or find images online, it was more cost effective to use bricks of paper money to light fires than it was to use that money to buy bread because it was just so like catastrophically out of control. So the, the savings of middle-class and working-class Germans who had just recovered maybe from the impact of World War I were wiped out. And, and, and then you see again that polarization between those who may or may not have felt that and those who feel increasingly, increasingly like by the way, by 23, they've had at least four changes of government. None of the politicians who are in charge of making decisions now seem to know what they're doing. They're not helping me. My voice is not being heard is perhaps the 2022 version of this, right? And, and so it'll take a little while still, but you see the extremist political parties appearing in the fringes. And they're, they're still very fringe movements at this point, um, not really getting a lot of attention nationally, certainly, um, but they're there and they're, they're pulling on threads like the Treaty of Versailles was a terrible idea and we'll get rid of it. The Republic is a bad idea. It's not doing anything and, and we'll get rid of it. We've, we've got ideas about how to do this. Um, those who are responsible for your current misery, Jews. Catholics. Catholics are never to be trusted. They're the minority Christian religion in in Germany. Socialists, who by and large are part of every government at this point because they're the most stable political party, even with the the communists having founded their own party. These are the three people that we should blame for the end of the war 
and for the current misery in the first part of the Weimar Republic. And they choose these groups also because going back to 1918 and the signing of the armistice, they had been representatives from um, the, the political parties that took power, which included the socialists and the center party, which was a, a religious, Catholic religious political party. And there had been some very prominent German politicians who happened to be Jews that were also part of this. So those three will surface again and again in the rhetoric, especially of far right, what we would call far right, ultra right wing political parties like Nazis. But we'll point their fingers at these three um, sort of stereotypical enemies of Germany throughout this period. It strikes me that um, because it's relevant to Ernst Lubitsch's uh, experience as a Russian German Jew. Yeah. During this time, it was both a time of great access to society for someone who was Jewish like Ernst. I mean, prior to World War II and earlier, um, uh, his access and you know his kind of you know ancestors' access mm-hmm. to civil society was very limited and legally. Um, and during the Weimar era, it was in many ways more open than ever, which yeah. was part of what allowed him to become one of the most prominent artists of this generation uh, in a very short amount of time. And yet there is a kind of a growing violence to the anti-Semitism. I'm curious as to what you know, an experience of someone who is Jewish as a part of society would have been in this, in this, in this period. Um, yeah. Was the danger there presently for, for example, an average uh, Jewish person living in Berlin? And I should also note that they were a tiny minority. They were. Yes, they were. It's uh, that's such a good question, um, and it's so hard to answer it succinctly and concisely. Yeah, we're in my seminar right now. Um, we're going to spend basically two two meetings discussing this, so six hours. Um, but I'll, let, let's try and do it sort of in brief. Let's start with Jews in Germany after World War One. So. By and large, so Germany's uh, Jewish population at this point is less than 1% of its total population. It's, it's about 500,000. And the population is 60 million, somewhere in there. Most of the German Jewish community was highly assimilated. They spoke German and went to German schools and participated in German society fully, weren't tradi- particularly traditional looking in, appear- in outward appearance, and, and identified as German, as well as Jewish, um, but increasingly did not practice their religion. Some, obviously there was still synagogue goers and, and, and Jews that, that would have had a, an identity based more in faith than, than not. The amount of um, Jew, uh, Jewish and Christian intermarriages was huge at this point. Much bigger than it had been. Um, prior to World War I, religious communities tended to, to stay within their own communities. And this includes, in Germany anyways, um, Protestant-Catholic intermarriage. There wasn't a lot of that at all. Like It was heavily discouraged on both sides. And, and we're talking about the same sort of faith practice, right? Except that we're not in 1920s, uh, 1910s, 1900s. Germany, they they were really distinct subcultures, and Catholics were understood to be by the Protestants to be problematic because their loyal loyalty was ultimately to the Pope, who was in the mount over the mountains in Rome. So this is where we got get the word ultramontane, which has this sort of sinister ring to it. Like they're not real Germans because they can't be loyal ultimately to to the state and to the idea of Germany. And, and Catholics, of course, looked at Protestants as this sort of um, heretical 
breakaway people who precisely didn't pay attention to the edicts coming out of Rome and from the, the true head of the church on earth. And, and so there was not a lot of um, compromise or attempt to sort of discuss or conciliate with each other. Uh, and Jews were even further removed, obviously. These were uh, understood to be a, a people without a state. They lived in diaspora. Um, they had rejected Christ who came to save them. And so, the, you know, these are the roots of, of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, right? They, they either should be forced to convert or not live among us, you know, in, in, in hard times when, when violence, when the solution to tensions between the two communities broke down into violence. Um, so, so what's happening in, in 1920s Berlin? Jew, German Jews participated in the war, served in the, in the army, like all, like all Germans did. German Jews tended to be more in urban spaces, were, were sort of more highly represented in certain populations, uh, largely because of circumstances prior to their emancipation. There were only certain occupations they could hold, for instance, and this went back centuries, really. And this, of course, gave rise to conspiracies about Jewish worldwide plots to dominate Christians, right? sort of what I would call standard anti-Semitic motifs, a lot of it fueled by this real hostility towards and fear of difference that's rooted in religion. Although by the 20th century, they're increasingly understood to be a racial group, right? There's something in their blood that makes them different. Um, it's not simply a question of conversion anymore. But that's sort of creeping in slowly. We're not quite fully there. So somebody like Lubitsch, wandering around in, in 1922 Berlin. I mean, there's a lot of violence and, and some of it's aimed at Jewish politicians. Walter Rathenau, for instance, one of the most prominent examples of a politician who was assassinated, he was also Jewish, um, for his role in, in the end of World War I. But Jews are not really singled out at this point, not even at the end of the 20s when you, when you have uh, much more common sort of Nazi instigated violence. It's they're more likely to go after communists than they are after Jews. Now it, it also happened that a lot of German communists were Jewish, but there were also a lot of German communists who were not Jewish. So, so while you, you know, you, you pointed us towards violence that's bubbling up and, and being geared towards the, the Jewish community of Germany, I, I would actually say that doesn't really start in earnest until the thirties. Um, the violence of the 20s and early 30s is much less coherent. It's a lot more spontaneous, and, and often it's more politically oriented than, than sort of racially oriented or motivated. And, it, and it's really who the Nazis are concerned with are, are not so much the racial enemy that their propaganda keeps talking about, that Hitler keeps harping on about, but it, it's the communists. And I mean, in Hitler's head, communists and Jews were synonymous but realistically speaking, in, in the 1920s, it, the communist threat was much more um, something that Germans responded to and were scared of based on the example of Bolshevism. And they didn't necessarily equate that with, with Jews that they may or may not have known who lived down the street and, and ran the store on the corner kind of thing. So something we haven't really talked about is cinema uh, during the Weimar era. I, I always take care to tell my students when we start on that topic, I usually show them Metropolis um, as sort of one of the, the best examples of Weimar era cinema. Well, you know, the kind of famous apocryphal story about Fritz Lang, where he, you know, he was offered the job as the head of Ufa, I believe, um, by Goebbels personally, according to, this is all according to Lang, and then he left on the train the next night. But, you know, it's, it's exactly probably 
partially apocryphal. But yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not sure. <laughs> but very, I mean, to me, it's very much a, a case of like, it's, it's an extag truth. It's a print the legend case. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You know, I think there's a deeper truth there about the urgency of G- German non-authoritarian filmmakers to leave. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, because that's the other thing that happens um, with that, especially artists who were sensitive to political currents, you could see that coming if you paid attention to Nazism. And so, it, so you know, Lubitsch leaves earlier, and I, and I wouldn't say he's leaving because of the threat of Nazism, which in, the, in 1924, Hitler's in jail, the Nazi party's been disbanded, and it's really the, the pieces are scattered across Germany, even, like, even across the world, because Röhm leaves, leaves Europe entirely and goes to South America for a while. And, and from 24 to 28, you have this beautiful period of stability largely due to uh, Gustav Stresemann, who'd been chancellor very briefly and then became foreign minister. And he essentially settles the economy down after that period of hyperinflation. And he negotiates some very important alliances with some of Germany's neighbors and returns Germany to good standing in that community of European nation states. And um, all of a sudden, everything sort of starts to settle, at least in comparison to what came before and then what came next. And, and what comes next? So really what, what comes next is the Great Depression, which begins in the U.S., but is immediately and horrifically felt in Germany because of the Treaty of Versailles and the way that the reparations have been organized, that Germany must pay, but they're entirely dependent on American credit for that, which disappears overnight. And so once again, you have huge swaths of the German population in significant crisis for primarily economic reasons. And you have a parliament, a Reichstag, who again, like the the Weimar Republic had 15 chancellors, 14 chancellors in 15 years. So there's absolutely no political stability. And by 1930, there's no faith that any of those parties can figure it out because they've had, by 1930, they've had 11 years to figure this out. And they haven't yet. So so social democrats, the center um, party politicians, the liberals, the conservatives, all of these recognizable parties with track records of failure aren't an option anymore. And so who gets the attention? It's the fringe parties, right? The formerly fringe parties, which are now just seen as the end of the spectrum parties. You have the communists on the left and the Nazis on the right. And nobody really likes the communists. Everybody's scared about what's going on in in the Soviet Union now, uh, in, in Bolshevik Soviet Union, uh, where they seem to be killing people wantonly, and they've repressed religion entirely, and who knows what else is going on there. Um, and then you've got the Nazis, and all they talk about are, are conservative values, kicking out the communists, killing them if necessary, and kicking out the Jews. And so as an artist, what's, what are you going to take from that? And so you start to see this, this um, wave of emigration. Uh, that begins really, I think, with with artists who are the most sensitive to what the ramifications of that kind of message, even before the Nazis come to power, where it seems clear, I think, to really sort of farsighted individuals that this is going to get worse before it can get better. Yeah, I think it's worth um, underlining, too, that it wasn't some coded thing, the anti-Semitism of the Nazi party before they came into power. It was... No, it was the text, um, and I think that often gets lost in yes in the shuffle. It was a key part of their values. It's inseparable yes. from that. It wasn't some incidental thing for a greater purpose or whatever. It was 
it was the end goal. Yeah. No, it, um, Hitler's prison book text, you know, what happens to you when you try your hand at revolution and you fail and you're thrown into jail Well, you sit, you write your manifesto. Um, he wasn't the only one who did this, but he's one of the most famous. And, and so Mein Kampf, my struggle is all about the Jew as existential threat to German, um, to Germandom. And so the, the Nazis figure out after their, their failed attempt at revolution in 1923, uh, which, which they tried to overthrow the government in Munich and they failed and he ended up in jail, realized that we can't do this violently. We're going to have to do it through the system. And so we'll get elected. We'll get appointed the right way. And then we'll take the system apart from within. And that's exactly what they do. But they also figure out in 1930 that that violent anti-Semitism is actually not going to get them any votes. It, it's not a draw to the German people. Um, so it's, they don't get rid of it. They just don't talk about it as much. And so that anti-Semitic rhetoric that was really present in the early 20s is toned down quite a bit for, for their return to the sort of national political scene in the early 30s. And once Hitler achieves that position of power, which he gets by, you know, essentially winning the election of July 32 and forcing the conservative powers that be to work with the Nazi party and, and uh, getting appointed chancellor uh, for January 33. That's when he sort of returns to form and starts to talk more about Jews as enemy. Although, again, he does it primarily in the first year or so in the language of anti-communism. And in fact, the communists are the first group that they attack in February of 33 in the wake of the Reichstag fire. So, but by then, I think Jews who were likely to leave Germany based on the, the perceived threat of Nazism, you needed the means to do so because anti-Semitism is not specific to Germany. And there were only so many places you could go as a Jew legally, uh, especially if you didn't have money. And, and Canada wasn't one of them. Canada was not a destination that was letting in Jews. If you had the means and could leave, you, you probably left in that very early period. Uh, Jewish immigration out of Germany um, between 33 and 38, I would describe as kind of a, a trickle. Every now and then there's a, a bit of a burst, but there's, there's not a lot. Like it's the, that 500,000 strong Jewish community doesn't vanish by 39. In fact, more than half of the community is still there when World War II breaks up. Mm. And was that largely because of how difficult it became to leave? Yeah. So it was, it was always difficult for, for Jews to leave, to try and find better circumstances for themselves. The majority of European Jews lived uh, pre in 1919, either in Russia or in Poland. Poland had the biggest, the biggest Jewish community of, of Europe at that time. And they tended to flee West. And so transited through Germany, didn't necessarily stay. And this is where I remember how I'd said, uh, when we started talking about Lubitsch, I described Germany's Jewish community as largely assimilated. Mm -hmm. um, Jews coming from Eastern Europe were not. They tended to be much more traditional, more orthodox, and so had distinct and obvious differences in culture, in language, and even physical appearance. They married well with Nazi anti-Semitism, Nazi anti-Semitic mm -hmm. rhetoric, who tended to emphasize these differences, physical characteristics and behaviors that were, you know, um, incompatible with, with Christian German ways of living. They were much more thinking about these Ostjuden, these East European Jews, than they were thinking about highly assimilated German Jews, right? Mm -hmm. 
they also tended to be much poorer, didn't have the means necessarily to go to go you know beyond where they could walk. Um, so the idea of getting on onto a, a ship that would sail you know to somewhere in the Americas was really out of reach for a lot of these a lot of these Jewish families. Um, and then by 1930, the, by the later 1930s, the Nazis were only allowing Jews to leave if they could pay a tax. And so countries who perhaps had set quotas for Jewish immigrants um, prior to 39 were far less likely to let in penniless Jews than they were to, to let in, you know, Jews, Jews period. Um, not much has changed, I would say, in the 21st century, where I think um, countries are still very reticent or very nervous about letting in refugees who don't have any money. Uh, we heard a lot of this um, sort of anxiety around the idea of letting in refugees from you know, war-torn areas of the Middle East. Are they going to bring our economy down? Are they going to be a drain? So this was a sort of language that was prevalent in the 30s um, that circled around um, penniless Jews. Of course, Nazi Germany made them penniless by, mm-hmm. by stripping them of their wealth. And, and really that sort of plunder, that opportunistic plunder went hand in hand with discrimination and other forms of mistreatment. And then the war, when it broke out, made emigration basically impossible. And um, it's actually for a particularly, I mean, uh, me being an amateur, but particularly, uh, I think, compelling recounting of this is in Victor Klemperer's diaries, um, yeah. which I'm, I, was one of the most powerful texts I've ever uh, yeah. read about this. Um, and it's, it's interesting, um, as a little sidebar, that um, when Lubitsch moved to America, um, he was actually the subject of a significant I would say icy reception um, in that mm-hmm. there was even organized demonstrations uh, against him when he landed, not because he was Jewish, but because he was German. They didn't want this uh, basically, you know, big name German director coming in because largely grudges from World War One. Exactly. Germans were the enemy. You wonder if the other the other German emigres had similar experiences when they first came over and how they navigated that even during World War Two, um, because I remember I mean, Marlene Dietrich, who is another very famous example of a, yeah, a German, a German artist who, who fled, actually she fled the Nazis. I think she left in 30, and not because she was Jewish, because she just refused to, to live in that kind of a, a society. She was very present for American soldiers during World War II. Like she supported them by, by going, on putting, going out and putting on shows for them. And I wonder if she got any flack for being German herself. It's, it's interesting how common that was among um, even just in the film industry, like people like Sig Ruman, mm. who um, actually he was a, again, another um, a German immigrant. He was an actor, mm-hmm. um, acted in, I believe, three or Lupich films. Um, he did active uh, yeah, wartime work on the on behalf of the Americans. Yeah. Um, and you had other German directors making, uh, or informally German directors, uh, in terms of citizenship, um, uh, making propaganda films That's right. <laughs> for the Americans. That's so, right. um, I, I think, uh, Lubitsch in some ways, uh, broke some seals on that because you had this, I mean, you have people like Murnau, Long, von, von Sternberg. Uh, von Sternberg, yeah. Uh, yeah. Peter Lorre. Um, Billy Wilder yep. was another big name who was came a, at this time. Became Lubitsch's kind of um, one of his two key disciples. Exactly. Him and Walter Preminger, another one. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a veritable who's who. At like if you if you go through <laughs> prominent Hollywood directors and actors in in the late 30s and early 40s, it's it's kind of astonishing, really, the proportion that came out of Central Europe, shall we say? You know, this all is of 
particular interest, I think, to listeners of the podcast. Hello. Um, because um, so much of Lubitsch's work made within Germany, Germany and later in, in the U.S. is informed by this experience. Um, you know, uh, not only the obvious film like 1942's To Be or Not To Be, um, but films like Clooney Brown, which is partially about uh, the immigrant experience, uh, at least in, in the, la- the very last scene. Films uh, like Ninochka, Lubitsch's ideas of kind of, um, you know, human connection transcend international politics. And also the way that he um, glommed onto uh, basically American style capitalism so fully, um, he felt completely at home in that system <laughs> in a way that he never did. And um, he famously said, um, I prefer the Paris in the Paramount lot to the real Paris <laughs> because almost all of his films were set in Europe. Uh, and a lot of them in this romanticized pre war or interwar era. Um, and Noshka starts with a title card that explicitly states that yes, this film happened before 1939. <laughs> so, uh, so much of his, his attitudes towards, you know, even geopolitics to culture are so rooted in this experience that he had in wartime and uh, interwar Germany. Germany obviously had capitalist structures. It was a capitalist economy that wasn't nearly as powerful as the American economy for, for various reasons, although it certainly tried very hard. Um, but there was there was something about American culture, I think, that once that initial icy reception wore off, my sense was that most artists, in any case, found found ways to to make homes for themselves. Oh yes, fairly comfortably. Intellectuals, maybe not so much. Like I think I can think of academics, Jewish German Jewish academics who came to the United States. And it it really was temporary, and 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 always understood to be temporary. Um, Theodore Adorno is the is the most um, prominent example, who uh, was one of the founders of the um, the Frankfurt School, and and he went back to Germany when he could. Brecht might be the one anomaly because he doesn't stay in the U.S. Right? No, he comes over. And Brecht was he was Jewish, but he was also very communist. Like he was very very socialist, um, socialist minded, and so that. American system. I don't think he, I don't think he found a home in it. And so he goes back to, um, not just to Germany, but to East Germany, right? Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. When he can. Yeah. It's interesting. You hear kind of accounts from people like Billy Wilder and even Groucho Marx, uh, of a sort of a disillusionment yeah. with post-war Germany. Yeah. Um, I mean, Marx famously danced on Hitler's grave and then never came back. That's the, that's the story. I'm not sure right. how true that is, but uh, you said something that provoked something in my head that I want to touch upon in regards to Lubitsch. Uh, with Lubitsch especially, um, you know, in 1923-24, he's given an icy reception. And by 1934, he's the head of Paramount. Right. He's the only director, I believe, in Hollywood history to ever actually head up a studio for only a couple of years. It didn't, it wasn't a great marriage. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that 10 years, you know, it's uh, as astronomical as any rise of any artist in American That's film. Yeah. So is there any stone that we haven't turned yet that we should turn, I wonder? Perhaps, perhaps only to, to add that our, our understanding of the Weimar Republic is this era of cultural, almost frenetic activity, like feverish output, in some ways is colored by what came after, the Na- because the Nazis shut so much of it down so quickly. I, I've, 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 
I, I almost compare it to this like myths of like the partying on the Titanic as it was sinking or something, you know, this idea yeah. of this, you know, this everyone knows that they're doomed and it's kind of, you know, might as well party while we can. You exactly. Know? And, and so not to detract from what it, from what it was. And, and obviously there was so much of that that was real, just a sort of cautionary note that perhaps it looks brighter in hindsight, knowing the dark mm-hmm. chapters that, that shut it down if, if temporarily, um, you know, and, and the, the example I used for my students is, is the new one. She was called the new woman, this, this stereotype, this archetype of, of this dangerous sort of young woman who defied gender norms. Um, to what extent did she really exist? There was so much anxiety around her that we want to, I think, as students believe she that, you know, that all young German women were drawn to this model and wanted to be this model. And I'm mm-hmm. not sure, actually, that she was as present or as ubiquitous as as perhaps we would like to think. Like, we want all young women to be defying sort of conservative norms and finding space to create their own identities. and. In reality, I don't think a lot of young German women were actually doing that. It was more the idea that they could yeah. that's important and that, right, precisely the Nazis take away um, because they, re- they return us to, they return Germany to sort of very rigid understandings of, of gender norms and, and really not much straying from that. Even if they did, you know, homosexuality continued to be criminalized, but they really turned the other way when members of their own movement engaged in that sort of activity or, or held to that kind of identity. And, and really there were an awful lot of active gay men in the third Reich that, that we don't know much about that the Nazis kind of, you know, 50,000 gay men ended up in concentration camps. And I think 5,000 were convicted um, and, and, and sort of held for longer terms, but there were far more than that, that were just kind of, left alone as long as you're, you're not parading yourself mm-hmm. down, you know, under Den Linden and Berlin the way you could have during the Weimar Republic. So there's, I don't know, a, a sort of enclosing a desire to remember that, that the Weimar era, you know, glows brightly because the Third Reich was so dark. It's not often that we have such a contrast, yeah. like an obvious, famous, inviting comparison contrast where you can go oh that's the way it was overnight seemingly that's the way it is now Mm. yeah it's almost dizzying Mm -hmm. especially for the germans who were involved right i I, there are i would be remiss not to mention there are two books sitting on the table that we are sharing right now that you brought and i'd like you to introduce both because one of them uh is was actually a major source for my research for this podcast and i was relieved to see it because I was like, oh, am I going to make an ass of myself with this, you know, uh, like a pop history book? Um, But I'd like you to introduce both of the books. Sure. Um, So one is called Weimar Germany, Promise and Tragedy by uh, historian Eric D. Weitz. And it's my go-to text uh, for for teaching the history of the Weimar Republic, Um, but especially for its focus on the arts, on, on society and culture. So there, there is a chronological narrative about the political history of the Republic, but Weitz really is, in, his intentions are to highlight the evolution of various movements and, and products in artistic and social societal spheres. So there's a great deal about architecture and there's a great deal, there's, there's entire chapters on the incipient film industry in, in Germany 
um, there's a an entire chapter on sex and bodies, right? And and sort of the medical aspect and the political fights around things like contraception and abortion. So it's big and and somewhat scary for that reason. It's a few um, inches thick. Yeah, it is. It's but it's very readable. My students have said I I paired it with another book that was half the size and much denser and less enjoyable. So they really like this one. The bigger, heavier book, I should say, um, is MoMA's exhibition catalog for German Expressionism, The Graphic Impulse, which I think was, oh, I'm going to date myself. I think it was 20 years ago that they held it. And just to interject myself, MoMA stands for Museum of Modern Art in New York. Yes, in New York. Sorry, (laughs) I should have made that clear. Um, But it's, it's like my Bible of the movement, German Expressionism, which in fact starts at the end of the 19th century but really sort of comes into its own and, and does all sorts of interesting, divergent, radical, unexpected, exciting things during the Weimar Republic. And it, you know, it, it shoots off into, into surrealism and then it has important ties to the, the new objectivity, die neue Sacrikeit, it's, and into Bauhaus and things like that. And, and so just for the images alone, because historians too get tired of text and, and don't mind looking at pictures I, I bring it to show my students, like, if you want a visual understanding of what the Weimar Republic was, it's a really good place to start. Um, but actually, there's a third book I didn't bring that I should have, that I really want to highlight to you and to your, your readers. And it's a, a slender book called What I Saw by Joseph Roth, or if, if, if you want me to anglicize it, Joseph Roth. And Roth was a, uh, an Austrian-born Jew who emigrated to Germany and ended up in Berlin during the war. And, and I think the first couple of years of the post-war period, 1919, 1920. And then he sort of flits around Western Europe, doesn't really stay in Berlin, but returns on occasion. But he wrote, he was a journalist. Um, he wrote for a number of German newspapers. What I saw is a collection of his reports from the capital city during the Weimar Republic. And it covers everything from the construction of infrastructure to theater, to neighborhoods in Berlin, to the impressions that Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe make. And it's, it is so colorful. There are no photos. There are no images. The ideas you get about what Weimar era Berlin was are so poignantly and painstakingly rendered and it's, it's just so subjective. It's one person's impression of a capital city in a time of great flux. Like, what's there not to like about that? Uh, you don't have to agree with everything, but, but man, he had his opinions and, and he shared them sort of quite willingly. So I highly recommend that. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, as far as uh, one book I've been referring to occasionally is um, uh, Richard Evans's uh, Coming of the Third Reich, which is a narrative history um, of uh, Germany. It's mostly between you know, 1840-ish. Uh, it starts with, he has the question about starting with Bismarck, but he really does start with kind of Napoleon <laughs> and uh, goes all the way up to February 1933. Yeah. Um, I found it powerful in the mental exercises that Evans throws in. And these are just, they're not literal exercises. They're kind of embedded in the text um, to kind of um, encourage you to see history in a different way than you had before. Yes. So um, one particularly memorable passage was when he uh, invites you, the reader, to consider how, um, if, if you were, you know, uh, to time travel to turn of the 20th century and ask someone mm. out of the Western European, you know, kind of the, you know, what you might call, you know, culturally 
sophisticated in big air quotes countries, which would um, descend by mid-century into, uh, you know, a menagerie of violence. A sufficiently educated person might have picked France. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's just one example of many, but there are so many moments like that in that book where I genuinely, um, it completely changed how I saw the causal relationships in history. So I want yes. to recommend that book on that level. Yeah. And I mean, to any academics listening to this, it's probably of limited use, but uh, someone like me who read it six years ago and uh, was a, a novice, yeah, um, it opened so many doors for me. Thank you so much, Lauren, for taking part in this. Um, it's been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for making the time for, you know, an amateur like me to, to waltz in and ask you questions. Yeah, I know. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Next week, Where Is My Treasure? Also known as When I Was Dead with Will Ross. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 